0: Hello, this is Marissa Schaefer, and I'm here with DanceWell Podcast. The performing arts world is resilient. It doesn't surprise me in the least bit, but it's pretty incredible to watch. When the theaters went dark a year ago and it became clear that we would likely be sheltered in place for some time, a barrage of virtual performances popped up from pre-recorded, remixed, and remastered video masterpieces to live interactive theater on Zoom uh, to outdoor stages. And then over the summer came the bubbles, and when I say bubble, I mean the latest Merriam-Webster definition of a bubble or an area within which sports teams stay isolated from the general public during a series of scheduled games so as to prevent exposure to disease, and that includes accommodation amenities and the location at which the games are held, end quote. Translated into Dance Speak, that reads a group of dancers quarantining and isolating themselves from the public so that they can come together to create work without the need for social distancing or PPE. Places like Kotsban in Tivoli, New York, or Matacord Depot in Accord, New York, have been home to such residencies. These bubbles allow for some sense of normalcy, and their presence has allowed for the performing arts world to keep going. Today, I bring on my Harkness Center for Dance Injuries colleagues, Allison Delegate and Will Zinzer to talk to us about what it takes to make these bubbles happen. Allison Delegate attended Indiana University as a ballet major before transitioning to athletic training. She is certified by the Pilates Method Alliance as a Pilates instructor and by Polestar Education as a Pilates rehabilitation specialist. At the Harkness Center for Dance Injuries, Ms. Delegate provides backstage athletic training services for various Broadway shows and elite companies in New York City. Will Zinzer holds a dual bachelor's degree in athletic training and health promotion from the University of Texas at Austin. He has earned his master's degree in exercise science with a concentration in strength and conditioning from the Milken Institute of Public Health at George Washington University. Mr. Zinser has a gymnastics background, having competed in high school and college. He also studied circus, aerials, and acrobatics at Circo Arts, a division of Christchurch Polytech in New Zealand. And without further ado, here's our episode with Allison and Will. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, Nutrition, the life coach, dance and performance.
1: Psychological and today, you are Family in for, for treat.
0: Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell dance Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Dance Hello, Will and Allison, and welcome to Dance Well Podcast.
2: Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Of course.
0: Um, okay. So we are going to be talking about the the hot topic of bubbles, dance bubbles, which um, for our listeners, you may have read about in um, the Washington Post or other news media outlets or perhaps you know, on Instagram. Um, so we're going to go behind the scenes uh, on the medical team side to see or to hear about what uh, goes into creating a bubble. So thank you both for being here to help us with that. Um, So can you
1: start by telling us what a bubble is? Sure, should I take this one? Sure. Um, So we are defining a bubble as a discrete group of individuals who have quarantined for 10 to 14 days, have all tested negative for COVID within that quarantine period. Uh, And are then able to safely exist um, without utilizing the social distance and masking guidelines for the general public. So we utilize these with the purpose of allowing in this situation for allowing um, arts organizations and dance companies to be able to come together and exist in a safe environment where they can um, rehearse, touch each other, um, you know, share each other's space, share each other's air without the risk of, um, or minimizing the risk of contracting COVID in the process. Sure. Absolutely.
0: So like once they're there, there are a lot of things that are controlled too. I'm going off script, but, um, tell me about some of the things that, you know, you control on the environment once you are in your medical, in your bubble, pardon me.
1: Uh, once the bubble has begun, there is a COVID coordinator who is usually stage manager, company manager, one of the, um, arts admin folks who will kind of run the show behind the scenes, do a daily symptom check for each of the dancers. Well, anybody who enters the common area each day, um, where we take a temperature, we ask symptom questions, um, um, and then, you know, the the actual questions can kind of vary organization to organization, but the gist is a cluster of symptoms that are COVID related uh, in conjunction with a fever would be an indication that uh, perhaps this person is becoming symptomatic and needs to be removed from the bubble. So the purpose of the daily symptom screen is to just do exactly that is to screen, to make sure that before people enter the common area, they are um, not presenting with anything that could be worrisome. Um, The Obviously, the once they're in the bubble, contact with the outside world is very tightly monitored um, and eliminated as much as humanly possible. Um, uh, what else am I missing, Will?
2: Um, maybe just in terms of examples of how that's monitored. So food delivery is happening Correct. so that there's not a person-to-person mm-hmm. contact. Um, making sure that the space is a situation in which it's not being shared with other organizations.
1: Right. No one outside the bubble is allowed to enter that space unless that person is PPE'd up and maintain social distancing and that sort of thing. And even at that, we keep that to an absolute necessity minimum. Totally. Um, the spaces themselves are disinfected thoroughly each day with um, you know, disinfecting solutions that we know uh, will kill the COVID virus. Um, so the spaces get a deep clean at the end of every day, any high touch surfaces get wiped down throughout the day with bleach wipes. Um, and that's either done by, um, staff that, that live and work at the facility, like up at Cotswold. there are, um, people who work at that facility daily that manage that once the dancers left. Um, and it's also managed by the dancers and the artistic staff themselves throughout the day.
0: So I'm thinking like, this is the dance version of the Truman Show. <laughs> Basically, is what yes. is coming to mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like with contactless deliveries, like groceries and stuff like that, what's happening? Are they just being left outside the door, and then like dancers have to wait for
1: a little bit until they get the stuff, or how does that work? That varies by site. Um, I can tell you um, what at Cotswold when uh, Dance Theater Harlem was bubbling up there, they had uh, a glass door that was outside of the um, studio area. And so the Instacart delivery people would deliver it to the outside of the glass door Mm -hmm. or deliveries that need identification, like alcohol deliveries, Mm -hmm. which did happen. Um, You know, the ID would just be shown through the window so that the delivery person could confirm that, um, you know, the person was 21 who was receiving the alcohol and then they would leave it outside. Sure. Uh, And then once the delivered person left, they'd open the door, pick it inside and all that stuff. Even for the catering, um, they had blackout hours in the kitchen area, um, where no one was allowed to enter or leave the kitchen area as the catering, um, people delivered breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, so that was, you know, so there wasn't any unintended crossover of a dancer without a mask on entering the area while the caterers were there delivering all the food. Sure. Um, so all the meals are catered, um, and or cooked in-house, um, you know, up at the, uh, Matacor Depot uh, where Hope and Boykin is doing her bubble, uh, right now. Um, she made sure that they brought food up because that's a living situation. There's a functioning kitchen and this group is small enough that they're going to cook for themselves versus having their things catered in. So I saw, um, actually
0: a picture of their food area, which was extraordinarily organized <laughs> with their three <laughs> weeks of food. It was really, it was incredible. Um, that's yeah. great. So let's go back to before bubbles happen, um, as people are getting ready to go into the bubble. Um, You mentioned that they, you know, have quarantine procedures. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what you've seen in terms of quarantine procedures and what you've recommended?
1: Sure. Do you want to take this one for what the quarantine guidelines are?
2: Sure. Absolutely. Um, So in the um, manifestation of the virus and the symptoms, we know – Better now is that sometimes onset takes about five days from exposure before it's actually seen in a test. So whenever we are expecting to go into a bubble, all of the company members and people that are going to be closely involved in the bubble are expected to quarantine pretty tightly at home before entering the bubble. So the expectation is that kind of some of these parameters that we're expecting them to be in once they're in the bubble are being maintained in quarantine prior. So things like food delivery and not going to the grocery store and interacting and um, their abilities at home, whether that is to isolate is to kind of, um, if they live alone, then it's very easy. If they live with a family, then it's gonna be a little bit more difficult and um, certain specific recommendations for those people might need to be considered, but um, they need to quarantine for um, about two weeks. And five days into that quarantine situation where they've had very minimal exposure to anything that might um, create a later infection and need to be minimized so that five days in, they have a COVID test that we can pretty accurately assess whether or not um, they will have COVID going into the bubble. Um, And then maintaining those parameters for the rest of this quarantine period um, to then- Before the bubble begins, Before the bubble begins.
0: Um, a couple follow up questions. So you said they should quarantine for about fourteen days. Um, I know New York guidelines are a little bit different. Initially they were fourteen days. They've changed. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: It kind of seems like the t- timing gets a little bit. Um, I have family that lives in Texas, and like the it it just seems like very. All over the board in terms of have you had symptoms and gotten tested and those days are different versus you're asymptomatic and what those things are um with like we said five days is kind of when things start to present themselves so um i think two weeks is the, the the safe parameter to go with, um, 10 days is the recommendation with no symptoms and that negative test. Um, so it kind of depends on how stringent a bubble is going to be and what kind of risk factors you think there might be. Like, um, I know that kind of a worry is, you know, what are those things that you're not foreseeing with the bubble and where exposures might happen. Um, so if you want to kind of allow for a little bit more time for those things to show themselves, um, a little bit longer, um, quarantine might be a little bit safer. Um,
1: yeah, but we're definitely recommending a 10 day minimum Sure. quarantine, 10 to 14 days is kind of the window that, um, uh, we feel is is a safe window for any symptoms to, to start to manifest themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Will was saying, you know, we want to wait at least the first five days before you get tested so that if you were exposed, on you know negative day one right the day before you started quarantining that the viral load would have built up high enough that it will be detectable via pcr test right um whereas if you got a test on day one and your viral load wasn't high enough yet you might have a false negative and become undetected and then bring COVID into the bubble unknowingly. sure sure um and
0: then kind of going into that a little bit more like it's especially here in new york city um people live together. So if you are, you know, taking the two weeks to quarantine before, but you do live with people or you live with your family, right? Like how, and you don't have the option because people, I mean, especially now don't necessarily have the finances to go somewhere else. How does that work when you live with other people?
1: Strictly speaking, we would ask the entire household to quarantine for those two weeks Mm -hmm. so that there is no exposure opportunity. Um, for fortunately the bubbles that we have had uh, experiences with have had grant funding to allow for individualized housing for the dancers that didn't live alone mm-hmm. so that they were able to self isolate uh, during that quarantine window. Um, a stopgap could be to have everyone in the home mask up during those two weeks. That's that's an all right compromise, um, but it's certainly not as as effective as completely self isolating. You know, if the entire household is able to self isolate, that is the the first choice.
2: Yeah. And we were kind of talking about what are, what are your resources in terms of being able to accomplish a bubble? And if it is something that you don't have the funds to necessarily self isolate, maybe a second test prior to going up would be a way to mm-hmm. recheck in and see if. Um,
1: Just to ensure those masked
2: yeah. indoors with people that aren't necessarily as strict, has that been effective? So maybe five days into the quarantine, you test, and then as they're transferring into the bubble, test again mm-hmm. to, if those resources are available, but test again to see how effective um, that, I guess, isolation versus quarantine was. Right, how right. How effective it was. Right, cool.
0: Um, so what if someone, what if someone has like a positive PCR test? Um, does that mean they're out like in, within the quarantine period?
1: It depends on the length of the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, COVID has about a two week lifespan. So once somebody has tested positive, you know, from day one of their um, positive test, you have to kind of count out then at least 10 to 14 days uh, before they test again to see if then they're negative. Ideally, for that person's sake, they would have be an asymptomatic carrier, not actually get sick in that interim. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it wouldn't be prudent or safe to introduce that person to the bubble until that time span had passed and they had had a negative COVID test. Sure. So depending on the length of the bubble, if it's a two week bubble, then they're out. Right. You know, right. Uh, if it's a month long residency uh, and they have the opportunity, I mean, the other thing is, you know, with dance companies, they're creating work, they're, you know, working on repertoire. And so if someone, a core person is missing for the first half of that that might not be functional for the company as a whole. So that's when that conversation has to become a little bit larger about the ultimate, you know, risk benefit of, of including that person into the bubble. Totally.
0: Have you all had that kind of conversation before like the quarantine starts in your experience, or is that kind of something that just like we'll have this conversation if it comes up
1: type of deal? Um, the, both the bubbles that I have been a part of have been short enough that the conversation was basically like, if you test positive, you're out. Right. Um, just because it's not, there's not enough of a, of a timeline of the bubble itself to matter. Mm -hmm. Um, but we did have like one of the, um, company members last fall was pregnant. And very much wanted to come to the bubble, but the decision was made by the company management that it was just too much of a risk. You know that it wasn't worth it for her to expose herself sure. potentially, even with the bubble parameters, sure. um, while she was you know carrying a child. So, uh, and that was an individual decision made between that artist and the company. But uh, you know art, those are like kind of the individual situations you need to you can address as they arise. Right, that makes sense.
2: And while this isn't necessarily bubble related, I think having the conversation prior about the importance of the effects that a positive test can have on everyone else. Mm -hmm. I know that some of our offsite contracts with, um, different schools placing that importance on a negative test and being able to have time in a studio Mm -hmm. and be able to interact with your company members and kind of get back to performing and creating, it's a huge motivator. Mm -hmm. So to kind of ignore that fact, I think, um, lessons, the importance of it. And if everyone involved kind of knows how their actions will affect each other, it kind of makes it a little bit easier to just hunker down for two weeks and um, maybe limit what you would have been doing before so that you really do get this experience and you are able to um, get back in the studio and dance with your fellow company members.
1: Yeah. Which is huge. Well, and even peeling off of that, being able to create a culture and an environment at the bubble that there, you are, comfortable being transparent. If you start to experience a symptom, you know, if you wake up and you're feverish, don't try to take too Tylenol before you go get your temperature taken so that you can go in that day, you know, understanding like you, it's like, you know, hiding an injury, except, you know, your injury could effectively shut the entire bubble down and get your colleagues sick. Right. So, you know, being able to have that environment where transparency and, um, uh, um,
2: Accountability. Accountability,
1: you know, yeah, are very think you will yes! <laughs> are, uh, are highlighted as things that are, um, you know, good for the community and things that are important to be cognizant of. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause certainly that one, again, one person who wakes up with a fever and a sore throat and a headache, you know, that is a cluster of symptoms that would qual- disqualify them from being able to participate in the bubble. And, you know, right. dancers are notorious for hiding that stuff because they want to just dance. Right. Though, but having that, you know, kind of inherent understanding that it's not just you that you're affecting, but everybody who's there um, makes a big difference.
0: Certainly. And I think, you know, Will, going back to like the the school conversation and basically to highlight what both of you said, like I've also been in those conversations like on Zoom where all the students have their own little tiles and, you know, the the medical task force individuals are, are reiterating that like we're all in this together and everyone's actions like – influence how everyone else can experience this. Um, and it's, just, it's really interesting to watch people, right. Understand that to be like, we literally had someone say like, hold on a second. So if <laughs> this girl has COVID, then I can't dance. And, you know, and it, it, it add I think it, um, gave some positive peer pressure <laughs> to, mm-hmm, to act mm-hmm. responsibly.
2: Right. And, and anecdotally, um, kind of seeing with university programs that aren't dance related over the past year and seeing how the COVID transmission has been so great amongst um, our college students. And then to hear through injury prevention assessments that I've done with different students that are participating in programs and and with the ones we work with, to kind of hear the numbers are like, oh, we had one person test positive that wasn't even related to school Mm -hmm. or we had two. I am really just proud of our dance community and yeah. the commitment yeah. to each other and to the art that they take this really seriously and um, allow each other to be in the studio and experience it and
0: yes.
1: still improve and train.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. May that be a reflection of things to come. <laughs> um, okay. So let's say. Um, so we mentioned nog like, once everyone gets to the bubble, the people, Um, once the dancers get to the bubble, the PPE comes off, they can all be together. But then let's say, um, let's say someone gets hurt and actually needs to be triaged and seen in person, barring, you know, a physical therapist or someone having like being up on site, like they need like MD attention. Um, How does that work in terms of the bubble?
1: Unfortunately, it means they have to be they have to leave the bubble. They have to be. And again, if, if the residency is long enough and they can go through another two day, two week quarantine, then they could return to the bubble for better or for worse. If they if their injury is bad enough that they needed to be, you know, seen by a doctor in person, that probably means they're not going to be dancing anyway. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit no harm, no foul that they're leaving the bubble, but um, yeah, I mean, once they, once they leave that, once they leave the bubble, they are, contaminated, quote unquote, you know, um, they they have lost their quarantine status um, and they would have to re-quarantine and get retested negatively before they could come back into the bubble.
0: Right. Um, And I know just like, again, anecdotally for the sake of our listeners, like, I know that the bubbles that we're working on together right now have a little bit of like virtual PT and virtual, um, MD consult if need be. Um, and then we're, we're also quarantining and going up, um, and wearing PPE and being distanced and all that stuff. So there, there's that. Um, but, but this kind of brings in another, um, kind of subtopic that I wonder if you both can comment on. Like, obviously we know that, and Will, you spoke about this on an earlier podcast, right? Like, obviously we know that, the dance world is suffering right now and the opportunities for dancing, um, are limited. And so therefore a lot of our dancers that we're seeing are deconditioned and going into a residency means having a lot of dancing. And so therefore if you're going in deconditioned and you're, then you're going to dance a lot and your load increases steeply, you're at an increased risk for injury. So like, have you all had conversations, um, in the bubbles that you've worked in, um, regarding how to ramp up training before going in and what does that look like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we worked with Dance Theater of Harlem mm-hmm. prior to their Cotspon um, residency bubble. And we had virtual injury prevention assessments, essentially, with each member of the company to kind of talk about their concerns and where they felt strong, where they felt weak. And kind of giving them the evidence-based research around how they can use this time prior to going into that bubble to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that's cardiovascular fitness, um, strength. Power, all of those types of things, um, definitely, I think, need to be addressed prior to the demands being asked of them, and um, to go into that situation unprepared and then being expected to perform, whether it's creation or are you doing this bubble for um, filming mm-hmm. and promotional materials and different things for seasons to come, um, you need to be prepared for that and to um just be excited about the opportunity and going in um is kind of a recipe for disaster um need to be prepared because your body hasn't been asked to do that for so long so
1: well and as the person who was up there treating them i can say i was very pleasantly surprised at how well these dancers prepared beforehand how well how seriously they were taking their self-care and their injury management while they were there Um, you know, and how cognizant and the artistic staff and the dancers themselves were cognizant of how do I ramp up over this first week, second week, third week. So when they were recording and doing, I mean, they were expected to be performance level recording by the end of the last week. And I mean, it was, it was very, very successful. And that's, you know, in no small part, because all of the dancers took their responsibility to themselves very seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, And the artistic staff as well, um, you know, took that into, into consideration and, you know, helped, worked with the dancers and worked worked with us to you know keep their exposure level as appropriate as possible um you know in the context of of this bubble so I was very we didn't sing, we didn't sing a single dancer home with an injury that's amazing um everything was able to be managed on site and uh you know it was it was very successful that's awesome so it can be done it can be done yes it's been done many
0: times and a very it's amazing i'm like I'm like kind of getting like little goosebumps listening because I'm going up tomorrow to the, the Boykin bubble. Yay, Harkness and Boykin bubble. Um, and I'm just, I'm just so excited to see, see these people like dancing, right. And, um, and kind of feel like we can, we can do this for our community. We can create some kind of semblance of normalcy. And, um, anyway, I'm just really excited. So speaking of which, um, (laughs) can you all talk about, um, I think you alluded to this before, but, Obviously the dancers who've quarantined and gone up and the artistic staff, et cetera, um, are one part of the, the bubble. Right. But then we also have people like PTs, like I think, you know, in our instance, we have some lighting designers and other Mm. stuff coming up filming crew. Um, so how are their protocols different and what's their interaction like with the bubble dancers?
1: So for anyone who is not in residence in the bubble, Mm -hmm. um, we are asking them to uh, quarantine as much as they possibly can in that 10 to 14 days before they go up. They are also required to have a negative COVID test. Um, The difference is because they are not living, working, breathing in that same space for an extended period of time if they're staying offsite at a hotel um, and so they're coming in and out of the bubble, while they are there, they need to continue to PPE and socially distance and all of those things. Um, so that they're not inadvertently bringing in contamination into the pristine uh, bubble environment. Um, So for example, when um, we were up there treating at at DTH, at Cotspon, or when you're with Hope um, tomorrow, yay, Yay. um, you know, you will wear the um, appropriate PPE like we would at the NYU, you know, at Harkness um, PT facility where we have face shields, we have masks, you know, we're wiping the tables down between every patient trying to stay as distant as possible, except when we need to be closer for um, treatment. Like in my area, and I don't know what your treatment situation is gonna be like if we can open windows and get some cross breeze so that we're getting air circulation into this space, you know, taking all the precautions we can um, to keep everybody safe. The dancers need to be masked when they come in for treatment. Um, so anytime that you're interacting with someone who's not a permanent part of the bubble, we have to revert back to all of our PPE guidelines. Mm-hmm. Awesome, cool. Um,
2: I think whenever we were um, talking about DTH going up to Cotsbaum, just the, and this is a little bit of a side note, but just um, the expectation of having a physical therapist or clinician and an athletic trainer with them the entire time. So that mm-hmm. this idea of PPEing and how, like what are the questions around um damaging the bubble and having this outside person and it just it it just makes me think of i just wish the arts had the funding that they could pay someone to be there for the entire two weeks and there wasn't something because i mean even having we know that there are overuse injuries that are probably um at higher chance to sneak in because of the lack of activity and going in so have someone around and be able to watch the rehearsal process and really kind of get pointers would be so helpful but Mm -hmm. unfortunately that um isn't in the cards. Isn't
0: usually the reality. Right. No, no. And I mean, I hope we never have to have bubbles in our lifetime again. Um, but um, from your lips, from my lips to God's ears. Um, what's what's your experience been like? I mean, just like personally, how how has it been for you working with these bubbles? Um, I know, Allison, you went up to Katban. Will mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you did, but like, what what have you? Well, yeah. What was your expect? What were your feelings, your thoughts and feels?
1: Well, I mean, Cotswold was just beautiful. It was nice to be up in the country for in the middle of the fall when the foliage was just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I was like you, I was like a little bit of a kid in a candy store, just looking through the window at the dancers going, oh, they're so pretty. Dancing ballet is so nice. <laughs> um, so I had forgotten what an inner bunhead I am, you know, because it had been so long since I had actually seen these guys doing their thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just really nice to to see them again. You know, I've been working with DTH for like 15 years. So um, I've known some of these dancers for a very, very long time. So it was really nice just to see them again and get to interact in some sort of normal way, you know. Mm. Um uh I definitely felt, I mean, I knew that I had been, I had taken my self-isolation and my um, quarantining very seriously before I went up there. So I had very minimal concerns about that I was going to contaminate the bubble, that I was going to bring something in that would have destroyed this entire thing that they created. Um, But that certainly was a lingering concern being someone who, you know, I, I wasn't fully in the quarantine. I had to come to work. You know, in the week leading up before I left, um, it, you know, that's all I did. I went to work and went home, but I still had that, you know, those relative exposures. Um, but I think it's also, I mean, as evidenced by, you know, we've been seeing patients in person at Harkness since last June, and PPE works, mm-hmm. you know, and if you follow the guidelines, it, it's effective to combat the spread of this disease. So um, I just had confidence in that going up there, um, being able to provide medical care, but do it safely. Awesome.
2: Um, I haven't participated in a bubble. I wasn't fortunate enough to go up to Bond with DTH, but um, just recently I've been doing some on-site treatments with Mark Morris Dance Group, mm-hmm. and even though that's not technically a bubble, what I've seen with them and their precautions um, is really encouraging to mm-hmm. kind of see a model of how... They you can appropriately allow people into a space and limit exposure and things. So I I have to do a daily screening before I go in. And the way that they're building is set up. I have to buzz to get in. They clear me. I go in. They have a computer set up that scans my temperature. I never really have to interact with anybody until I go up to the treatment space and I'm in PPE while I'm treating. And they are conducting rehearsals and creation via Zoom with limited people that might already live together or close relations. So they've almost created their own bubble Mm -hmm. in the city. I mean, obviously like you're still on public transit and things, so the strictness of that isn't there, but um, to see how we can get creative um, Mm -hmm. with bubbles is um, really encouraging and promising.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think I echo all those sentiments with my experience at Ailey. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember like we also have the temperature screen. They hired like security people at the front to make sure we're scanning our health checks in the morning. And there's even like a little um, piece of paper that you have to pull out and like press the button for the elevator. So it's like (laughs) it's really um, I mean, it's really expertly done. And I think the first day that I was back treating in person in the fall, um, I remember going up to the company manager and, I mean, and saying to him, like, I'm pretty sure that I'm in heaven right now, right? <laughs> and it obviously helps that there are floor-to-ceiling windows. But, like, you know, being being back in person was extraordinarily, um, I don't know, just wonderful, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to get back there. And also, you know, testament to their amazing job, they've been fine, you know, to this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this this conversation kind of like in summary, it gives me – makes me very proud of our profession, like dance medicine, um, mm-hmm. and the, proud of the dance community. Um, and also, I never – I hope we never have to do bubbles again.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a skill I wish we didn't have to have. Yeah, yeah. But certainly, certainly has been an interesting journey kind of figuring all of this out, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you two want to
0: add to this conversation? Anything I missed? you've noticed
1: um i think the only thing that i would say as far as somebody becoming symptomatic inside the bubble is that we very much are utilizing like the cluster of symptoms approach instead of you know one symptom happening in isolation
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um so like if somebody woke up and they just had a scratchy throat but no fever, no headache. Obviously, no loss of smell or taste, which are you know kind of the hallmarks of COVID symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, we really try to look at the you know NYU guidelines are um, a fever above ninety nine point five plus two COVID like symptoms um, before that becomes something that's flagged. And so, you know, it's a little bit of of, of um, walking that line of being hyper vigilant and being appropriately vigilant. Sure. Um, but again, I think as long as there's the environment of transparency and that dancers don't feel like that they need to hide a symptom that they're having, um, the, as long as the COVID coordinator, you know, the person who is doing these daily symptom checks is also kind of aware of what those parameters are and how to effectively take steps, um, you know, as soon as is necessary is really, I think that's where it gets a little, it seems very black and white until you have a person standing in front of you going, well, I don't know, I have a sore throat can I come in, you know? Right. Like, wow. So, um, just kind of making sure that we, as the healthcare providers educate the people who are on site, managing this enough that they feel empowered to make appropriate and smart decisions for the group, sure. you know, cause it's a lot of responsibility to put on someone. It's a lot. Um, and I mean to put on everyone, but you know, especially the person who gets the job of being the gatekeeper, mm-hmm. it can be tough. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think
1: integrally, like
2: From the onset, creating flexibility into the system. So, Mm -hmm. kind of that idea of creating an open space to be honest with your symptoms and what's happening. And if you do have somebody that presents that is iffy, and well, I mean, we really need time to see are these symptoms going to progress? Is it something that just it's a new space that they're sleeping in and, you know, the fan wasn't running, so they have a dry, sore throat? But, you know, creating enough space in the schedule that maybe you don't need them for that time, and you can work on something else and just being flexible with that system so that you can kind of see if they need to be isolated longer or if it really is progressing to symptoms that they need to leave the bubble. Right. Um, Really that flexibility and just kind of planning for those plan Bs, Mm -hmm. uh, I think will allow space for people to be more comfortable with being honest with their symptoms, but also there's, there's gonna be, I mean, Just in creation, there's always something that kind of sets us back. And so the flexibility will only help with other things and allow people to be more thinkable to process and uh, be able to switch it up a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Culture of the space. Very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you both. I really appreciate your expertise. This was lovely.
2: It's always great to see you.
1: Yeah. Me too.
0: (laughs) All right. Take care of both of you. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. On behalf of Ellie and myself, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzi, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help us to pay for SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at
1: dancewellpodcastgmail.com. At Bye.